Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 15th, 2015, and my guest is Eric Hanischek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Rick, welcome back to EconTalk. It's great to be back. Our topic for today is the Millennium Development Goals, especially related to education around the world, and how we might think about the best policies to improve well-being and the role education plays in that. We're going to draw on work that Rick has done with Ludger Woosman, and we'll put a link up to the study you've done on the topic. And to get us started, tell us what the Millennium Development Goals are and why they matter, if at all. In 2000, the United Nations and UNESCO set out a range of goals that they thought would help to guide countries and development agencies in their policies. The goals were supposed to be met by 2015, and they ranged from uh, issues of health to poverty to inclusion of females, and the one that I paid most attention to is that all kids in the world should have basically an eighth or ninth grade education by 2015. Now, they're important because they actually seem to influence both what development agencies do and the way countries respond. Which is fascinating. There's some desire to, quote, meet the goals. They, they don't want to look like a failure, right? I guess it's part of it. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, there has been a large effort to have an annual report on both how individual countries are doing on separate goals and to provide narrative on better development policies. So they've been producing reports for the last 15 years on what's been going on around the world in terms of development. So here it is, 2015. How are we doing? Well, in 2014, they suddenly realized we weren't going to meet the goals. <laughs> it's getting close. Um, yeah. Hope springs eternal for a while, and then it starts to die. <laughs> and so in uh, 2014, they started having new meetings about what were the post-2015 development goals. And these were large international gatherings around the world to try to hammer down a new set of goals that would be met by 2030. They sort of have a thing about every 15 years, have uh, a set of goals. Well, 15 years is long enough to think we've got plenty of time and also to think, eh, so far in the future, uh, we can just, uh, you know, well, it could be, um, but they worked very hard at this, and in May of this year, May 2015, there was a large international gathering in Incheon, Korea, to try to hammer out the final version of their post-2015 goals. This version is to be enacted at the UN in September of this year. So... 
how do we do in, or how are we likely to do in 2015 in reaching the goals that were established in 2000 that every child in the world would have an eighth or ninth grade education? Well, I think that you have to conclude that there was remarkable progress in terms of the quantity of schooling that people were getting, how many kids were in classrooms, and how much school they were completing between 2000 and 2015. So particularly in uh, South Asia and Africa, and to some extent Latin America, you saw some fairly dramatic increases in uh, school attendance and in school completion. But there will be an actual number like 73% or 46%, right? Absolutely. And what, what is that likely to fall? Where is that number likely to fall? Well, I, I know it, it depends upon the basically wealth of the country. So for the developed countries of the OECD, that number is above 95%. The OECD being U.S., uh, Europe, Canada, Japan, and an added, some added countries. Now we've had Chile and Mexico and Turkey are are in there also, but it's basically the club of developed countries okay. is the OECD. Um, if you get down to what the World Bank calls middle income countries, um, you see that uh, maybe eighty percent of their kids will have completed 8th or ninth grade education, up from uh, probably about 60% in 2000. So there have been these Big great gains, but there's still, by this standard, uh, a ways to go. And knowing, having read some of the report and having talked to you about this issue before, uh, there was a but that you didn't get to in your in your summary, you said there have been some incredible gains in the level of education, the number of people sitting in classrooms. So what's the but? The but is a huge but. <laughs> Lots of kids um, had butts in chairs. They, they were sitting in the classrooms, but they didn't learn anything because we have separate measures of math and science and reading that have been given to a large number of countries now internationally, including developing countries. And we see that um, amazingly little learning by some of the kids that had eight or nine years of education. Yeah, and we've talked about this on the on the Econ Talk before uh, with uh, previous guests, and and the challenge that we as economists typically are measuring something called years of schooling, which we assume perhaps naively until recently was related to growth of knowledge, what we call human capital. And it's dawning on us that uh, perhaps there's not a lot of human capital accumulation going on in despite the hours that are spent there. That's absolutely the case. Um, once you have measures of what kids are learning, you see that years in the classroom is a very imperfect measure of the skills of people in different countries in particular because the... Um, difference between, um, say, kids in Peru and kids in Singapore in terms of measured test performance translates into maybe five years difference in uh, amount of schooling. So that two kids... That looks the same, observationally. So so two kids in the ninth grade 
Uh, if you call Singapore the ninth grade, the, in uh, Peru, they're in the fourth grade according by Singapore standards, so that simply recording how much time people have spent in the classroom does not in any way give you information about whether they have the skills to compete in today's international world. So that raises the question that when you think about the Millennium Development Goals going forward, if we said, uh, I'm going to put you in charge of those goals, obviously one one way to set the new goals is to say we're going to keep the old goal, which we didn't reach, of getting every kid to have an eighth or ninth grade education, and we'll just get closer to 100%. Um, I assume that's not what we're doing. Well, that's not what I would like to do, but um, <laughs> uh, at the meeting in Incheon, Korea in May of 2015, uh, the proposed goal was entirely everybody get an eighth or ninth grade education with no mention of quality. Now, fortunately, a number of people are beginning to realize that you can't ignore quality. And so there was pushback at that meeting. Were you at that meeting? Did you I say? was not at that meeting. Um, but What kind of people are at the meeting? Are these education ministers from the countries we're talking about? Or is it other well, folks? they're education ministers, they're finance ministers, they're all kinds of people because the development goals span, span lots, of, stuff, lots yeah. of, of different areas. But the uh, vice president of the World Bank for Education was there. The head of the education section at the OECD was there. Uh, the head of education uh, for UNESCO was there. So these are high-level people with all of their um, uh, people to carry their materials for them at the meeting, so it was a very large meeting. But these are serious people who are trying to get some consensus. But when you say that there's some pushback against this goal of just years of education as a crude and unsatisfactory proxy for human capital accumulation, who's pushing back? Who's, who's representing and lobbying for a subtler or richer appreciation of what's going on? Well, I think it's now, you know. it's now um, a fairly broad group. There are um, representatives of the World Bank that I believe now fully believe in qualitative goals for education. There are representatives of the Asian Development Bank that have the same perspective that you have to mention quality even if you stick with the attainment goals. Um, the people from the OECD and developing agencies like the um, Department for International Development of the UK are there, and they also are now quite aware of the difference between years of schooling and learning. So I just want to mention the episode I was thinking of in the back of my mind is, is Lant Pritchett's and his work that we've talked about here before on the that disconnect between people in school versus actually learning something. So so what should we be doing? Well, what do you recommend or what have you talk about what your work uh, has been in this area and what it suggests should be a better goal or strategy I've, more importantly obviously because the goal itself is not the ultimate. 
in, in a larger sense, Ludger Woosman and I have been working on issues of economic growth and how that relates to the skills of the people and also on earnings of individuals and how that relates to skills now for a dozen years and recently put together a book on this subject called The Knowledge Capital of Nations, which tries to look at the relationship with growth. But because of the post-2015 development goals and because of this meeting in Incheon, uh, the OECD contacted Luther and me to see whether we could provide some better guidance on quality. And over the last spring, we put together a small book called Universal Basic Skills, where we essentially propose keeping the eighth or ninth year, uh, years of schooling standard, but that somebody at the end of that uh, uh, schooling should be able to meet a level of basic skills, which can be defined now by the tests that are available. As we've discussed in the past, there have been international tests of math and science now for uh, 50 years, but recently, since 2000, the OECD has, every three years, tested kids in a wide variety of countries. These are called the PISA test, um, which stands for the Program for International Student Assessment. Every three years, they take a math problem, um, a math problem that's aimed at 15-year-olds, which is about the eighth or ninth year of schooling, so it's the right level. They take this math problem and translate it into local languages and march it around the world. One problem? No. They, they well, I, just, I just say a math problem. Uh, they, You're speaking philosophically. They, they have a set of math problems. They have a set of okay. math problems. The they pressure of getting that one right, where your whole future, your country's <laughs> self-esteem riding on it, seems too much. Um, yes, indeed. Um, um, so, but let me give you one problem to give you an idea of what the standard yeah. we propose is. We propose what's called level one, which for math means if you're given all of the um, variables and, and uh, all everything you need to solve a problem, you can solve it. So an example would be that um, the people flew from Washington to Incheon, Korea, um, and that airfare cost them $4,600. If the exchange rate between the dollar and the euro is 1 to 1.1, how much did this ticket cost in euros? And so the idea would be that's a level one problem or problem similar to that, that people at age 15 could reliably solve that problem. Well, it turns out that uh, lots of kids age 15 can't, including 24% of U.S. students age 15 can't reliably solve problems like that at level one. But it gets up to much larger numbers as you talk about developing countries. And what we propose in this work is that the post-2015 development goal should be that everybody gets an eighth or ninth grade education and can solve a level one problem, which to us seems like what you might call functional literacy in today's world. Right. In order to compete in 
an increasingly international labor market and, and product market, people have to be able to solve some very simple problems like that. So I, I, I'm not sure that's true. I, I'd like to, let's talk a little bit about that. And I'm also curious about level two and three, but you know that particular problem obviously is, is something you'd want to solve if you're going to be an effective tourist uh, and spend your money carefully and wisely. Uh, it's not obvious to me uh, in many, many jobs, virtually no mathematical sophistication is necessary, obviously, in either the United States or in a poor country. Um, there, On the other hand, there are many jobs where it's essential, and level one would be trivially unhelpful. Before we go on, how many levels are there? There are six piece, levels. Six levels. So what would be a level, a higher level level, a higher level type of problem? Um, I don't have any readily available examples now. There are ones that require you to to make some inference or make, assume, a, yeah. make a, step, a connection, a, a connection uh, between the information you're given and the problem that you're trying to solve. So they they um, uh, would would require um, uh, direct inference, but not too much more that they have to be able to extract the relevant information and use that. Like you might not might not know what the exchange rate is. You have to find it or... Yeah, and it, uh, applying basic algorithms to solve problems. Um, so coming back to just as a, an aside to your problem of being a tourist, um, uh, <laughs> I said that 24% of U.S. students couldn't reliably solve that level one exchange rate problem. I actually misstated it because 24% percent of U.S. students can't solve similar problems to that, but 54 percent of U.S. students cannot solve an exchange rate problem. Right, because it's too, they've never gone overseas, they have a big country. No, that's not right. It's that all, all international transactions are in dollars, and we never have to worry about exchange yeah. rates in the U.S., but other countries do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Obviously, that's a culturally biased question against U.S. Uh, US students, uh, which I Obviously, that's a, and I'm joking about it a little bit, but it's a serious problem, I assume, when you make these problems. Translating them into the domestic language is not sufficient in many of these cases, I presume, to make it amenable. Oh, absolutely. And that's why, I mean, I think they actually test reading, but I fail to see how you can actually get comparable reading problems that you can get a good estimate of the difference in people. But math problems seem shot. much yeah, more yeah. straightforward in science problems. So... Going back now to the uh, both the goal and the policy. So the goal would be you have to get a certain number of people to get a passing grade or a certain level of achievement um, uh, that certifies you effectively as a as literate, yeah. financial, uh, excuse me, mathematically or uh, numerately or uh, reading wise. And the question is, I guess, I guess there's two thoughts. One is uh, you might be uh, if with that standard, you will, of course, teach to the test, which maybe is a very good thing. We're talking about very fundamental uh, levels of proficiency. And then the question is, um, how valuable is this going to be? And I know you've looked at that. So let's talk about that. Yeah, well, this is going to be extraordinarily valuable. And we'll come back to teaching to the test. I mean, in some sense, you want people to teach to the test in terms of the right test. having these basic skills if they're measured well. Um, the work that Ludger and I did here 
follows on from our analysis of economic growth of countries and what the implications are. What we've done in the past is to show that essentially growth rates around the world are almost entirely dependent upon the skills of the population and where skills are measured by performance on these international math and science tests so that we can explain 75% of the variation in growth rates across countries by simply knowing measures of the math and science ability of the population. So these tests have a big impact on growth rates and it's growth rates that determine wealth of, the, of a country in the future. Uh, it's economic growth that makes you better off today than your parents were. And if you don't have growth, you are very much different than your parents. So most, to give you an example... Most of human history um, is little growth and if we look, like your parents. Yeah, no, exactly. If you look since 1960 and you contrast what has gone on in East Asia versus what has gone on in Latin America, the average person in East Asia today is nine times more wealthy than uh, an East Asian, average East Asian in 1960. Um, whereas in Latin America, they're two and a half times better off than their parents than two generations right. ago in 1960. Big difference. Um, and this is all a simple manifestation of what growth rates or compound interest does for you. So then the, but the fundamental question is, is the connection between, um, there's sort of a number of links in this chain. We have test scores as a proxy for skill or slash knowledge, ability, human capital. Obviously, the test score in and of itself has nothing to do with growth. It's just merely an attempt to measure effectiveness of past education for the students. So we have that. That has to then link to economic outcomes. The presumption then is that people have more knowledge or going to be more effective. And I guess my question would be uh, reverse causation. Is it also not the case that richer countries are going to have more education? They're going to have more skills that will be measured by the test, but maybe they're really not so important. What I have in mind is that an issue we've talked about before, but you know, it's funny. I always wonder uh, whether listeners are, are frustrated when we go over topics that we've talked about in the past. I, you've been on many times, Rick. We've talked about many of these issues before, but I've forgotten almost everything we've talked about. So I assume many of the listeners have as well. And not only that, I'm I'm much smarter than I was the last time we talked because I've listened to I've talked to Land Pritchett and I've talked to James Tooley. And so I like to come back to these topics and 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 chat about them again because I find it that's the way education actually takes place. So this is the, this is the bane of teachers, right? Because <laughs> I have given you all of these pearls in the past and they've gone away, yeah. and disappeared. But I'm always willing to come back and talk about these because those are the right questions. And these are the ask. these are the fundamental questions that don't have easy answers and so it's for me it's very useful to think about them again in a new way and so go ahead so let me rephrase your question slightly uh, 
One way of putting your question is, if a country found a way to improve its schools and the achievement of its population, could it really expect to have higher growth in the future and better economic outcomes? Exactly. And that's, that's the fundamental question. And so make me more like Finland and will make my education system more like Finland. Will I, will I be more like Finland? Exactly. A wealthy, happy country. Cold. Not you probably won't be cold and, yeah, and all the other that, things that go along that. with Finland. Yeah. But, um, uh, so we spend a lot of time in the knowledge capital of nations, the book that summarizes all the underlying research, trying to pin down this question of causation and whether achievement or the skills that are embodied in our achievement test really do cause differences in growth rates. It's very hard in international work to do to be conclusive about this and to and to have an airtight case. But what we do is take the series of most likely arguments, such as the one you make, does um, higher income cause more achievement as opposed to achievement causing more income, higher income, and we try to test a series of these. So there are, um, first, the finding that the changes in spending on schools by countries is basically unrelated to any changes in their test scores. So that if you thought that higher income countries could then put more money back into their schools as they grow faster and put more money in their schools, you don't see it in terms of the simple answers. We look at whether, in fact, um, institutions about the schooling system, like the presence of external examinations for students that give incentives to students to work harder, um, affect growth by affecting higher achievement. So you wouldn't expect external exams necessarily to affect growth directly, but in fact, they lead to higher achievement, and that by itself leads to higher growth that we can find. So there's a series of institutional structures of choice in the schools and examination accountability systems that, in fact, affect achievement, and that the achievement that is related to those differences affects growth. We look at whether... In the past 30, uh, 40 years, when countries have, in fact, managed to increase their test scores over time, is it related to changes in their growth rates at the same time? And, in fact, it is with the limited number of countries that we can look at those for. Then um, there's a question about whether it's all just the economic institutions of a country that determine growth and countries with bias. good economic institutions also have good schooling that's institutions. My, yeah, that's my worry. And so it's something left out. So one way to get around this in our cultural arguments is to look at test scores that are available for different countries and follow immigrants into the U.S. from different countries with different 
average level of skills, and compare them to immigrants from the same countries that got their schooling in the U.S. Does it make a difference when we look at their, the test scores of those educated in their home countries as compared to the U.S.? And what you see is that it directly affects the income levels of immigrants. So an immigrant from Korea will earn as if he had the test scores of Korea if, in fact, he got educated there, but not if he got educated in the U.S. So comparing Korea... So I got two... This is, this is a nice thought experience. So I have two, two Korean immigrants. One of them comes here at... comes to the United States at 18. Right. They have been educated in Korea. The other comes here at... Six. Six and gets educated in the United States. Yes. So they both arrive into the same economic set of set of economic opportunities in theory, and yet the one who is educated in Korea doesn't do as well as the one who is educated here, if that's what you're... Well, not quite. He does better. Or better, because the Korean system He does better is, because the Korean education is better, and that his income is directly related to the skills on average that he would have gotten from Korea. So we're looking at the same economic institutions, the United right. States, and looking at how skills are treated there. And we're looking at the same culture because we're c comparing Korean to Korean. Right. And the difference is not culture or economic institutions, but skills that appear to matter in terms of U.S. earnings. So again, it's not... So that test, just stick with this for a sec, that test attempt to control for that statistically. Uh, what kind of breadth are we talking about in terms of number of countries, observations? I mean, and how would you, how, where are you getting that, those data from? It's an interesting so, example. It's a fascinating example. We take the data from the same set of international tests that we use in these growth models that we have for 63 countries um, but how do you have data on Korean uh, immigrants' incomes oh. versus Mexicans for people who arrived at 6 versus 18? Or, you know, that's a lot of detail there. Where do you get that from? The U.S. Census gives us um, several hundred thousand observations of immigrants from different countries, and we know when they came to the U.S. and where they would have been educated um, from the census information, and we know their earnings. In the, sure. in the labor market, yeah, yeah. so uh, we can look directly at these issues. It's pretty should, noisy, though, I'd guess. Well, the, you get estimates that look very similar to the estimates you get from um, native individual panel data for native-born U.S. Um, uh, workers on the impact of measured test scores on U.S. workers. It's not just a function of the large Mexican immigrant population because it holds, if we ignore Mexican immigrants, it is um, uh, not something that is only um, a language issue because another if we challenge. look at just the uh, immigrants from countries where English is the first language, we find exactly the same thing. So, again, there are reasons to distrust some of this, but all of the 
evidence we have is consistent with this being a causal story. We get the same answer from these different ways of looking at the, at the problem. So tell me what you think then uh, the implication is. Let's take that as a given. I'm going to come back and challenge it some more in a minute. But let's take that as a given. And uh, what are the implications then for the goals? Because oh. you have some – it's more than just – and again, we don't literally care about the goals. We also care about policy improvements. And this is not just about the developing world. It's about the United States as well. So what do you see as the key things to remember when we're thinking about bang for the buck in education policy? Let's come back to the estimates in universal basic skills, which was the document that Luger and I put together to relate to the post-2015 development goals. Do the following experiments, given our relationship between economic growth and achievement. First, think of getting everybody to have eight or nine years of education at the current quality level of each country. So no improvement in quality, just but get more people in the seats. Exactly the basic. Millennium Development Goals and the, of the past fifteen years. of the past fifteen years and the quantitative aspects of post twenty fifteen development goals. So experiment one is get everybody with an eighth or ninth grade education at current quality. Experiment two is take only those that are currently in school in each country and bring the bottom up to level one. Don't don't affect any. Don't touch anybody else. Just bring keep everything. the proportions attending the same, but improve the quality of the experience so that they actually learn some of these basic skills. Exactly, that they are apparently not learning from the evidence we have on the exams. In many cases, like the twenty four percent of U.S. students that aren't there. And what would be? Give me another um, country, if you have it off the top of your head. Of of how, how bad is it in some places? Fifty percent in Mexico. Cannot do level one. Of 15-year-olds who are in school cannot do level one problems. So for Mexico, we could imagine going to 100% or take the 50% that are already there and get them up to level one. Exactly. Right. So that's the comparison. And what what do you find? Or doing all three. The third experiment is doing both things. Um, So you find that, that we can look at 76 countries of the world. 76 is chosen by the fact that we have test score information on 76 different countries in roughly 2013 so that we can project out to the future. And so we project... 76 is a big number. You got a lot of big range of, of development and levels there. We have all 31 OECD countries plus um, a bunch of other wealthy countries like the Arab oil countries are in there. Um, and not in the OECD. And then we have a lot of developing countries like um, seven or eight countries in Latin America that are developing. What you find for the middle-income countries, which are the ones below the developed OECD level, um, about 80% of their students currently get to um, uh, eighth or ninth grade of schooling, but larger, much larger proportion don't get to level one. Getting everybody in schooling has an impact on their future income, 
which we calculate into the pre into the future and then take present values, it would um, roughly double be worth double their current GDP if they got that other twenty percent on average, into the schools. Into the schools, take the eighty percent that's currently in school and lift the bottom end up to level one for these countries. You'd get six times the value of GDP, or three times more than just putting people in the classroom at their current level of learning. Do both of it together, and you get 13 times GDP. So there's, there are two summary statistics that come out of this. One is improving the skills of the population has, at least by the historical, stand, uh, historical observations, has a huge impact on the future economic well-being of countries. That's the fact that East Asia is nine times as rich as two generations ago, as opposed to Latin America, with much lower growth, is two and a half times as rich. So it has a huge impact. Secondly, if you just focus on getting people in, into seats, you find that that is insufficient, that that doesn't get you what you want. What you really have to worry about is what people know and their skills in school. It seems indisputable. The question is, I guess, what the magnitudes are, and then, of course, the question would be how to get there from here. So when I think about these issues, I, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is a recent episode on Econ Talk with uh, Morton Jervin, and he gave an example of how uh, Congo did not use the plow. And everybody knows a plow is a very effective way to use agriculture, uh, way to, to do agriculture. And the fact that they didn't use the plow is obviously a handicap, and their productivity could have been so much higher. But when you look more closely, despite these claims, uh, it turns out the topsoil in Congo is not so amenable to the plow, and it was a bad investment. It would have been a bad investment. So when I think about these desperately poor countries, um, I, I certainly accept the correlation that we started with, which is that in the richer countries, they have higher test scores. Lower countries, they have, they have lower test scores. It's just it's not obvious to me that, that when you add, improve those test scores, they're going to be more like uh, Korea or the United States or Denmark or Finland. And I guess the issue would be, one way to think about it is, well, you know, they're on the ground – uh, why is there less? Why is it there more clamor for improving these skills than 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 you might think? So, in the case of the the plow, you say, "Well, why aren't they using the plow? What's wrong with these people? Just give them plows, and they'll 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 have agricultural productivity, or give them a give them a wheat combine, give them a, give them some real equipment." So, the question is, are are you fooling yourself that by adding these skills, you're going they're going to translate into productivity in their home country uh, the way they translate, say, into a, in a developed country? I don't think we're fooling ourselves on that score. When we've done the analysis of growth, we find that just looking at non-OECD countries or poorer countries, you get an even larger estimated impact of skills on growth rates. So within the set of poorer countries, does skill matter? 
And what we see is that it has a bigger impact there. Um, so that's the first bit of evidence. The second bit is sort of anecdotal evidence. If you start looking at Chinese factories, we spend a lot of time looking at Chinese growth rates. Uh, if we looked 20 years ago, we would have seen a lot of labor-intensive activities. If we look today, we see much more mechanized activities. Sort of like thinking of U.S. car manufacturers, that some time ago there was a big production line and you handed everybody a, a wrench. wrench or a hammer and they made a car. And today you hand them a computer that allows them to control the production line. And then there's a few interventions by people, but it's really checking up on whether the computer is doing its job. And what you see is that um, around the world, there is skill-intensive change in production so that over time, countries are demanding more and more skills. You see it in the U.S. when you look at U.S. earnings of highly skilled people versus medium-skilled people, you see a huge difference in terms of their earnings in the U.S. And that's because the most effective technologies are ones that, at least right now, use a lot of skill. And so I think that that's what you would see, start to see in developing countries at the same time. Now, there's another, perhaps people think of as an anomaly, the value of highly skilled rocket scientists is even greater in developing countries than it is in developed countries because developing countries scarcer. are scarcer and they're trying to imitate what goes on and imitation takes skill. Yeah, I just, I, those are all, you know, relevant and um, plausible. I, I guess the question is, whether the range of stuff that comes along with a good education and a good economic system, a functional labor market, a functional uh, a dynamic business sector, whether that's really uh, much more complicated than these, than these basic skills. So I, I love the point that you made. I think I remember a friend of mine uh, used to be involved in the manufacturing of, of – um, clothing overseas for American retailers. And he said, you know, a, a sweater factory in China is a bunch of women with knitting needles. That's the capital. The capital or each woman gets two needles and they spend all day knitting. Well, that was 30 years ago or so, and it's not true anymore. So knowing how to knit, which is a very easy skill to acquire, manage, you need some dexterity, that doesn't get you anywhere anymore. So as you point out, there's been an escalation of what skills are required. And I want to mention the episode we did with Adam Davidson where manufacturing in the United States, exactly like you talked about, is not a guy with a wrench. It's somebody actually does a little bit of calculus and is doing some very subtle things in um, stamping and, and, and metalwork that would have been unimaginable 20, 25 years ago. So I think that's all true. I think the question is, I, I want to go back to this earlier question of teaching to the test. If I teach, if I improve the level one skills of 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 millions of children in a dysfunctional economy, 
uh, are they really going to find application of their better uh, mental acuity at that point? I just I worry about that. I don't. In fact, my bigger worry is that by focusing resources, and we're going to turn in a minute to how you get there from here, by focusing resources on this particular aspect of the problem, are we giving everybody a plow? We're saying, okay, or, or the equivalent, you know, in an extreme case, I think about a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. You know, you've come back from the future and you've got the only calculator. You've got the only Texas Instruments calculator and you're going to, it's a big edge. There are a lot. If you really know what to do with it, it could be a big edge, or it could be absolutely useless because you don't have the full range of other infrastructure you need to make it powerful. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that you raise legitimate questions, but I think what the history shows, uh, as we look at growth rates and so forth, is that when the skills are there, the economies develop to use those skills, and. It's a slower process in some places than others, obviously. If there is no capital equipment in a, in a country, it takes a while to develop that and to figure out how to use it and so forth. But all of history um, that we can see, which is kind of limited, but looking from 1960 to, to until today, we see that we can explain three-quarters of the variation in growth rates across countries, both within developing the developing world and within the developed world, by the skills of the population. And so what that suggests is that um, economies around the world have found ways to use the skills that are available. And um, so if you're a smart investor and you know that uh, all of a sudden there's a spurt of skills and knowledge in Peru that isn't being used by the local manufacturers, it might pay for you to have direct foreign investment in Peru to absorb these skills and use them uh, um, competitively. Uh, and to make better products. So let's take that as true. So the, again, that link, that leap is, let's assume that there are some pretty general universal, universal skills that make you more productive than you otherwise would be and that your economic system is able to, where you are, is able to use those skills. How, how do you get there from here? So you know, the can question... Can I stop one, yeah. one second here? What I should also point out is that the character of the economic system does impact the returns on these skills so that if I have a completely closed economy to the outside world, there is a return to skills, but it's about half the return that we see in completely open economies. And in, econ and in countries that don't have secure property rights and all of the other things that we think are important economic institutions, the returns to skills are lower, but they're still positive. And it takes a while to change these institutions along with them. But what we've seen is that countries that both change skills and the institutions that follow get the gains. Okay, well said. Um, so going back to this question of, of how we get there from here, I think the we, we it's easy to see the appeal of the 2000 Millennium Development Goals that, that there's going to be a... 100% getting at least an 8th or ninth grade education because most countries keep track of that. It's easily measured. We, we've all, we've, I think, we've 
spent the first half of this conversation. We understand it's not the best measure, but we understand the appeal of it. Now we're going to try to, you're trying to push a more advanced, uh, thoughtful, richer measure. Um, I, I may be skeptical about the magnitude of the impact, but I, I think it would be a better thing for the world if more children learned how to think and read and absorb information. So don't let, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. So the question then is, how, how, how do you get there from here? M- many people would agree with that on paper, uh, which is where this might be ultimately. The question is, you want to make your schools better. You've got a bunch of dysfunctional schools uh, where this learning is not taking place. Uh, how are we going to hope that this might actually make it an actual difference in what, what they learn? How would you have that happen? What would, what would it take to get there? Well, what it really takes... <laughs> in simplest terms, is better teachers. Um, We've talked about this before on Econ Talk. As far as I can tell, in both developed and developing countries, the thing that makes the largest difference in schools is the quality of the teachers. Now, parents are important and so forth, but in a lot of these developing countries, parents don't enter in much in the direct education, and it's the quality of the teachers. And here, um, how you get from here to there is more uncertain because it depends upon lots of local institutional structures. The education sector everywhere in the world is heavily unionized and heavily protective of their current teachers and tries to resist many changes that holds for the U.S., that holds for... Uh, Peru that I keep coming back to and and Brazil and other places. And part of this is educating both policymakers and the population in different countries that it really makes a difference, a huge difference. We have that problem in the U.S. uh, where everybody nods their head and says, oh yes, education is important. But if you say, well, you have to do traumatic things to change the quality of your teachers or how you pay and reward teachers, they say, oh, well, but that's pretty tough. And and so there's resistance to the idea of making major changes. For a whole bunch of reasons, some of which just fear. Yeah, I'm I'm oversimplifying this. But part of the purpose behind the work that Luger Woosman and I have done looking at individual countries and the gains they can make is to lay out in the open, here's the benefits you could get if you find a way to improve your schools. We don't work at laying out specific policies, but we do work at convincing people that the gains are so large that you should you be try. willing to, willing to <laughs> yeah. consider a broader set of policies than having one student fewer in each class. Yeah. Um, so let me, make, let me raise a philosophical issue here about education generally that, that I think about a lot. And if you think about parents care deeply about their children, uh, for, it's obviously true. And if you said to a parent, uh, something's wrong with your child physically, uh, does it matter the quality of the doctor you go to? And every, every parent understands that it matters. Every parent wants the best doctor for their kid. They want 
a minimum standard. They want uh, they're willing to pay a lot of money if they have to. They'd prefer not to, of course, but they, they're willing to pay money and they're going to try to find out whether it's a good doctor or not. If 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 people, neighbors and others have bad experiences with that doctor, they're not going to want to go to that doctor. They'll try a different one. What's interesting to me is that so even though parents know nothing about medicine, zero, most of us, most parents know very little technically about medicine. We're very careful about how we consume the people who provide medicine and health for our children. It's interesting to me that we struggle to do that with education. We, we Just as we trust the doctor as to know what's best, we also trust the school board, the curriculum, the administrators of a school, and we sort of assume Many people do. I don't, obviously, but <laughs> listeners know. But we sort of say, well, they're experts, and, and they'll know what's best. Well, if you look at any reasonable history of education, what's considered best at any one point in time is rarely what's considered best five years later. There's fads, uh, and any thoughtful parent realizes that uh, this is a very tricky thing. So the reason I raise this, I'm thinking about James Tooley's work, there was a guest on the program where parents are aware that the public schools that they're in are atrocious, even though they're without charge and there's no fee. They're willing to pay to go to private schools, even though they're desperately poor people. And I just wonder about this as an end around for the current problems that we're talking about. Is that really a plausible, given how hard it is to, to measure and for parents to measure and, and, and figure out quality, uh, how important is that? It seems pretty important that, that these private schools are coming along. And, and uh, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of competition. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, again, I don't think there's a simple answer. But in Pakistan, where Thule is working, the government schools are so dysfunctional that you can put together these low-cost private schools that just dominate the government schools. They do better at pay with teachers that are paid a quarter a of the fraction of the yeah. um, um, is both of us agree competition among schools would be helpful and there's lots of resistance to that but charter schools are starting to make inroads and starting to have an impact but in the united states in the fact. united states i'm talking about um what you've what you see when you look at the research is that there are no silver bullets. There are no of the fads that you talk about that are going to take over everything. But having good accountability systems, which are kind of threatened today in the U.S., but are catching on in other countries where you have better measurement of the performance of schools that you can present to parents, that counts. Um, having more choice rewarding teachers that are seen to do well and not rewarding those that do poorly um, are all things that have been shown to have systematic positive impacts. How you introduce those in different countries or even within different states or communities in the U.S. is uncertain because you're starting at different points and trying to improve them, but we know that there are these overall themes of things that are going to improve, but there's resistance to every one of them. Yeah, 
part of it for what you mentioned before, the vested interests have a strong incentive to... I, I, I was going to say, finish that sentence, I'm going to stop, because I think there's a... There is a, a cliche there about... Uh, that I think it's a little... I've, I've come to be a little bit uncomfortable with, that, you know, that the teachers... That the teachers' unions are, try to stop all change, and I, I think the unions do that. I think there are many teachers in those unions who desperately want to do better, would like to do better. I'm thinking now of episodes we've done with Doug Lamov and others about the pedagogy of how to become a better teacher. I think most teachers get into education because they care about kids. They'd rather work less hard than hard, as all human beings do. But if I said to them, you're going to work a little bit harder, but you're going to really change these kids' lives and have an enormous impact on them, I think they'd love to see it. You're absolutely correct. I mean, I think in general, there is a very good teaching force in the U.S. I mean, I can't say that for all countries of the world, of course. Um, But there are still improvements that could be made. And I think you're absolutely correct to say it's not all teachers' unions. If you have states of the U.S. where unions aren't important, where there is not collective bargaining, you don't see dramatically different outcomes. Um, the leadership in schools, principals in the U.S. or headmasters in other schools, clearly is very important. We're starting to get evidence on that. There's a whole series of things. Ultimately, the policy that I would like to see is having a clear description of the quality of each school, what their value added is, how much they're adding to the achievement of kids, make that very public and start making policies not on the basis of what is class size or what what should we do about this or that or the other thing, but are you producing the outcomes? Because we know good teachers, clever, innovative, motivated teachers can do this but they'll do it in very different ways. I Correct. Mean, there's, there's no, uh, what we've seen in the research is it's very difficult to describe what distinguishes a particularly effective teacher from a mediocre teacher or even an ineffective teacher because it's hard to pick out individual aspects. But we know that there are some that are much more gifted than others, and those are the people we want in our classrooms. Yeah, and that really brings up you know, one of the, the biggest challenges of this, which is that the temptation to look for explicit measures that are qualified, that are quantified, uh, is is very powerful. And um, as you say, a great teacher is it's not somebody who has a master's degree. It's not somebody who's been teaching for at least seven years. Those things may matter, but it's often intangible. But that doesn't mean you can't find it. And I think great principals understand who their good teachers are, great teachers, and who their not so great ones are. And the, comes back to our you know, the point that without competition, without accountability of, in my mind, the marketplace, it's very hard to expect that that those processes are going to work well uh, on their own. And um, I just want to come back to an example. I think I've probably asked you this before, but it, I just got another example of it uh, like the other night. We had some friends over uh, for dinner from Israel. And um, I, have, I have family in Israel. I have friends in Israel. The uniformly decry the Israeli public school system. They say it's horrible. And you think, well, okay, everybody likes to complain, and how horrible can it be? And the guest last two nights ago said, well, here's how horrible it is. You know, my, my nine-year-old 
uh, finds her schoolwork boring. They ask her to spit back stuff that they ask her to memorize. She doesn't learn anything. And I told her, oh, don't, don't worry about it. If it's not interesting, don't, you don't have to work so hard uh, because grades aren't that important. But she gets A's and B's anyway because the teacher doesn't want it to look bad for the teacher that the student isn't mm-hmm. learning. And you think, like, that level of dysfunctionality is so depressing. And maybe it's not symptomatic. I'm sure it's not symptomatic of all Israeli public schools. But the fact that that exists at all is so depressing to me. Then I step back and I say, well, Israel is one of the most innovative countries in the world. They have an unbelievable workforce of creative people. Is it, it could be twice as creative if, if, if their schooling system was better? Or is it really that so many other parts of life are, what, are doing the educating? So uh, why, don't, why don't you talk about that? Well, um, first, I want to reinforce your friends. Israel doesn't do very well on these international math and science tests, um, and partly reflecting what's going on. What you see in Israel is the same thing you see in Silicon Valley, where we're sitting today. There is a culture and a set of incentives that encourage people to innovate, to do different things, take risks. to take risks, to have a dynamic economy. And so it's not all skills, but in fact, more skills, I think, lead to fine-tuning the economic institutions that provide these rewards and that uh, encourage people to do better. And so I think that Israel could do better if, in fact, improved its schools. Um, I was quite surprised to start seeing the results on Israeli schools because I know a You're bunch of smart Israelis, but they're <laughs> all in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> most large well, numbers of them. I, I think that's you know you mentioned Silicon Valley. This is uh, one of the things that strikes you when you're here is how international it is, and we in this area attract the most skilled people in the world. If they, if they can get here, they often will come because for two reasons. Obviously, there's synergies and complementarities that we've talked about uh, on other episodes on, um, on economic development. But the other part is what we talked about before, that their home country may not have the scope. They, they might do better in their home country than the less skilled oh. folks from their home country, but to come here is even better you get a, multiplic- a multiplicative effect. So that's been a U.S. advantage. We do better than you would expect given the this, this performance of our kids and our measured skills. We do better than you would expect. Part of it is good institutional structure for uh, encouraging economic growth and development. Part of it is historically we had much better schools than every place else in the world, which is not quite the same true today. But part of it is that we attract smart people from abroad, our immigrant population. And our immigrant population has been important in terms of providing much of the innovation. And you do, in fact, see that. Um, uh, Silicon Valley is a mecca for um, foreign food places because all of the restaurants... (laughs) catering sure. to their immigrant population makes it a wonderful place. Markets markets work, yeah. Um, let's close and talk about uh, 2030, just for fun. So, again, I, 
I think you and I, we, we've sparred a little bit in this conversation, but I think we both agree. Uh, you, you're, you obviously agree there's more things than skills that matter, and I obviously agree that skills matter. And I think what we're debating, to the extent we disagree, is over the magnitudes and whether how accurately we can measure it. Um, the next question will be, what are the probabilities that the world will move more in the direction that, that you're encouraging? So uh, put on your, uh, take out your crystal ball and tell me, if we were sitting, you know, God willing, we'll both be alive and, and at the Hoover Institution in 2030, and it'll be, uh, I'll be 75. I don't know how old you'll be, but uh, I hope I'm still doing econ talk there. And we'll look back on this conversation as we review the 2045 Millennium Goals. And what do you think we'll have observed? Um, because as you point out, between 2000 and 2015, we made a lot of progress on the measured goal, not so much progress on the human capital, but the world's a better place. I don't think it has much to do with the Millennium Goals, actually. I think it has to do with lots of other things. For, you know, but uh, give, just for fun, talk about what might be uh, coming down the road. Well, what I see is that a number of countries um, will, in fact, improve their economic institutions and improve their schooling and be extraordinarily competitive for the U.S. schools, um, I mean, the U.S. economy in the future, unless we get our own schools up the uh, up to the challenge. Um, a number of other countries see what has made the U.S. rich. We have good economic institutions, we have lots of human capital, and they're working very hard to do both of those things in their own countries. And they're doing better in terms of quality. The U.S. now is sixth from the bottom in the OECD in terms of high school graduation rates. Hmm. Um, and we're about the same ranking in terms of math and science scores internationally. So other countries are pushing very hard, and they're going to become much richer by it. Then there's um, a set of countries um, that we look at in all of the stories of the sort of political, societal disasters in sub-Saharan Africa um, are ones that maybe they'll never make it. So what we, um, what I think we're likely to see in 2030, unless there's a big change, is more bifurcation in the world, that we'll see the rich countries pulling away from the poor countries um, in many ways. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems, I think, for the world world order to how do you manage the fact that the rich are getting richer and the poor aren't. Well, on a more cheerful note, I would point out somewhat in line with the recent uh, panel conversation on the Magna Carta that if we had been back in 1975, or I'll go back to 85, 15 years before 2000, I don't know what the Millennium Goals, I assume, started around 2000. I assume that's the Millennium part. Um, if you would said in 1985, you know, what does the future hold? You would have missed almost certainly the extraordinary transformation of China and India, which has really made an enormous difference in the aggregate numbers. Obviously, mm -hmm. there still is a different. Let's say it differently. There's a bifurcation in the in the developed country in the developing countries 
between a handful that have uh, changed policies dramatically. And thank God there's billions of people who live in those countries who are benefiting from that. Well, I think those are two examples. If you ask me to predict what happens in 2030, I would predict that China is way, way ahead of India. And that's largely on the basis of the investments that the two countries are making in the human capital and skills of their population. Both China and India I see as having these double-digit growth rates from taking a extraordinarily bad economy and fixing it somewhat. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. And you can get tremendous growth out of taking a institutional structure that strangles business and lightening up a little bit, and you can get extraordinary growth. But in the future, both economies, as they improve their the structure of their economy, is going to have to fall back on their skills of their population, too. And in that regard, China is making much, much larger investments than India is. In India, um, there have been a lot of work uh, look at their schools. Um, there's one NGO that has tested large parts of the population, and they find that of the eighth graders in India, the people that are in their seats in the eighth grade, 25% of them cannot pass a second-grade reading test. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about in universal basic skills. If, if you have that population left behind, it's going to come back to haunt India in the future. And we have reason to think China's doing better? We do. Um, China has only participated in a few of these international tests in, in very specific ways. But the city of Shanghai, a mere 25 million people, um, is at the very top of the league tables on international math and science tests. And the students that are tested within Shanghai, which is nowhere near representative of China, but show that they have invested largely in these skills and that the um, kids in in Shanghai schools are doing extraordinarily well. My guest today has been Eric Hanishek. Rick, thanks as always for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.